When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was when I realized that the game that you see being played is not the game. And what you realize is the world's best investors think two or three steps ahead at a speed and understanding that is breathtaking and it takes a while to learn to be anywhere remotely as good. Hi everyone, welcome to a special edition of My Life in Four Trades. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Real Vision co-founder and CEO, Rao Powell. In part one of our conversation, you'll hear about Rao's childhood and journey into finance. And you'll also hear about his first two trades and the biggest lessons he took away from them. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Ralph. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Right, so I can't wait for this, Maggie. Ah, oh, we finally got you. <laughs> um, so before we jump in, it's our tradition to learn a little bit about your background. So let's start there. Where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Uh, I grew up in England, um, outside of London, near Windsor, where the Queen lives. Um, and I... I had a kind of an idyllic upbringing. We lived in a small cul-de-sac of 10 houses. There was 15 kids our age amongst those houses. We played on bicycles. It was kind of in the middle of the countryside as well, in a small village. So I had a, you know, a perfect upbringing and then kind of uprooted and moved to India when I was 11 years old. It was a massive recession um, in 1980, something like that. And um, dad decided... My father's from India, that we'll try our luck and move there. We came back 18 months later, realizing that we were never going to fit in there either. <laughs> the grass isn't greener. So did that dis- disrupt things or did you slide right back into that same cul-de-sac? It set that pattern of me being happy outside my comfort zone and also the experience of life itself as a journey and travel. It's in my blood. My father traveled to England when he was 19 or 18 uh, and then traveled back to India overland with four people in a van. Ended up in prison in Turkey, then in <laughs> Iran because their visas ran out, all sorts of drama. And he wrote about it for, a, um, for an Indian newspaper. And so and my mum was a Dutch au pair and they met on a blind date in Birmingham. So travel, adventure and living outside my comfort zone has been kind of dear to my heart all the way through from being a kid. And maybe some early experiences with sort of overcoming failure, because to sort of haul the whole family over and then 18 months go, oh, right, that didn't work out and, and head back. I mean, that has to have an impact on you. Yeah, I'm sure it does. Dad was an Indian kind of typically status driven. He was probably more scared of failure, but I saw a lot of failure around me. So I was, I would keep an eye on failure and then make sure it didn't happen was something that I learned. Um, also the other thing is like that group of 15 kids, they were all like captain of every single team, you know, swimming for the county, playing cricket for the county, playing football. 
And I was never able to compete with them. So I learned that the only person I could compete with was myself. So I, I, from a youth, I was never a competitive person with others around me, just with myself. That's really interesting. Wait, did you know that at the time? Or are you aware of that looking back now? Yeah, I, I, I knew I wasn't as good at, as them and accepted that. But I don't know, somehow it gave me the intrinsic motivation for kind of life itself that, yes, it is a team sport, but it's not really. In the end, the buck stops with you and you have to make your own success and luck, you know. And so, yeah, I don't know, but it's so badly ingrained in me that I can't even bear playing board games. Just can't stand it. Can't stand, don't play card games, none of it, because I don't like the competition. Do you not like the competition or do you not like losing? Because those are two different things. Oh, I don't mind losing. Um, I just, I don't know, there's something about competition that doesn't, competition against other people, you know, particularly people that you're, you know, friends or those close around you, that I just, it doesn't motivate me. I don't mind the competition of myself against the markets or whatever it is, where it's kind of faceless and you're trying to figure it out and it's based on you. But yeah, I'm just not a competitive person, which is, People find hard to believe, but I'm not. So was career in finance, a career in finance, something that was on your radar from a young age? So you don't want to compete with others, but you don't mind sort of, there is a part of you that's competitive and wants to do well. So did you, did you know about finance? Because it sounds like your dad or your family wasn't necessarily in the business. My dad was in marketing. So he was like European marketing director for Xerox um, he was in the copying machine industry, which at the time was the fast-growing, sexy tech industry. Um, and so he was in marketing, but I was a kid of the 80s, right? I grew up on my bicycle around the 80s and would see the rise of, you know, people with red braces and Porsches and champagne and the 80s thing happened, right? Oh, especially in the UK, right? Oh, yeah, really. It was huge in the UK. And you can't help but notice that this massive new wealth that accumulated the Thatcher Thatcher years. And so when I I was interested in finance, I was reading about it because it felt like it was cool to me, Uh, much like people might read about startup and entrepreneurial life now, you know, because you're you're dreaming about what your future self is. But I also liked marketing, understood it. And it was actually after university, I did economics and law at university, but tried to do as much financy stuff as possible, but also was focusing on marketing and it was the only university that would accept me, by the way. So it wasn't like I went to the best university. I went to the only one that would take me. Um, and I um, I was speaking to a friend of dad's, dad's birthday. And he said, Raoul, what are you, you going to do? And I graduated in 1990, which was a recession, which was a terrible year to graduate. Um, and I said, well, you know, I'm interested in marketing. And I've been interviewing. I have actually, I've got at home, still got a hundred rejection letters from all the companies I wrote to, many of who I worked for later. But, you know, I was interviewing at like places like Gillette and I wanted to do marketing. Um, but it, And I couldn't get any interviews at banks, but that was the other thing. And I said to this guy, I said, you know, I'm thinking about marketing or finance. And he looked at me and said, really simple, Rel. He goes, you can go and work for a great marketing company like Mars and they'll give you free Mars bars. Or you can go and work for a bank and they'll give you free money. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. It's like, yeah, it's the same job, right? You're doing basically sales and marketing. And so, but one pays a lot more. Um, 
And so that's how I ended up. I just, I'm a big believer in manifesting your own destiny. I kind of see it and then make it happen. And so I just made it happen. And I got there eventually, fought my way in, went through circuitous routes, started at a company called Tellerate, which was like Bloomberg at the time. In fact, it was the number yes. two. Reuters was number one, Tellerate was number two. I got a job in the graduate training program there. Um, I then got promoted to a salesman really quickly um, and then, and then um, focused on getting into a trading desk. And I went to a company called James Capel, which was a very kind of posh brokerage house that was part of HSBC in equity derivatives. And then my boss resigned six months later and I became the boss. <laughs> that was that. That's a shot right up. So what was your impression of that investment banking world? Because, you know, there was a certain sort of culture and a certain fitting in to that whole universe, um, both both here in the States and in the UK. It changed in my career. When I first started my career, the old boy network, the English class system was very prevalent and it was a very posh firm. So there was a lot of very posh people who went to very posh schools. Um, and it was kind of gentleman's club. So when you got promoted to a certain level, you get a club membership paid for by James Capel. It was, it was that kind of firm. Um, and my impression of the dealing room was obviously overwhelming, but the, the adrenaline, you know, even when I look back now, it was like, you're like a battery hen. You know, there was all of these very well-paid people with one meter by one meter next to each other. It was chaos, loud, engaging, terrifying. And it was also a foreign language. So you'd sit there and I knew a bit about finance, but I was like, what the hell is going on? These things, prices moving on the screen. You couldn't really focus. What do they mean? Why were they going up and down? And then, you know, eventually I actually discovered charts and charts were my visual cue. You know, some people are very visually driven and I'm very visual. So charts helped me with that. But as it, I progressed in my career and I transitioned to NatWest and then eventually to Goldman, it was a whole different world. It was, yes, there was a bit of background element, but then it was about how smart you were. Mm. And that was a very different environment. Um, much more competitive, much more uh, ruthless, fast-paced, entrepreneurial, um, but also restrictive in different ways. Yeah. So at some point you switch from, you get in through sales and marketing. Were you, were you always in that, but watching trading, or did you actually switch to trading and managing money? No. So I, I did my whole career in investment banks as a salesman. So I rode the wave of derivatives and I was an equity derivative guy. So, you know, the S&P futures and all of that were the start, you know, stock options, index options, and then it grew. And, you know, I was one of the people who started the sector swap business in Europe. So, you know, we trade sectors in the US that didn't exist in Europe. And I and a couple of hedge funds got together and created a market for this stuff. And I rode this huge wave. And in the middle of that, I started discovering that I spoke the language of hedge funds. And that was the area I focused on. And I really liked it. So then I became the hedge fund guy in Europe. So I became the kind of European hedge fund guy. And again, I just manifested it. I just, that's what I wanted to be. And I was at NatWest and we just, I was the head of the desk and I was moving a whole team from James Capel because they had failed to pay us a bonus when we had a great year. And we're like, fuck that, we're off. So the team was moving across 
And just as we were about to start work, the new boss at the time said, big change here. Um, NatWest have just hired 120 people from Morgan Stanley, the equity derivatives team. And this was the world's best equity derivative team. They're coming to NatWest. Um, and I said, well, what does it mean for me? Because I have no idea what it means for any of us. But it's going to be a change because we're going to turn from being a British investment bank to an American one. And it's going to happen fast. Um, and my new boss at the time, a guy called James Goldsmith, um, who was pretty famous in the industry, has like, you know, he was the hedge fund guy. And I was already speaking to some hedge funds. I was, you know, built started building a hedge fund business, but I was more of a generalist in my client base. And Rick said to me, he said, listen, Ral, your job of head of European um, equity derivatives doesn't exist anymore. I'm like, great. He said, what do you want to do? I said, hedge funds. He's like, fine. Who do you want to meet? And I gave him the list of the 10 largest hedge funds in the world. He said, come over to New York next week. I'll introduce you to all of them. And that was Paul Tudor Jones, Lewis Bacon, um, long-term capital management, all of them, the whole lot. And I met them all. And that was the start of my career. Which brings us perfectly to the to the trades. But were you terrified meeting them? Because you sort of, no. I mean, you sort of I've just, never lacked. No. I've never lacked confidence because I'm confident in myself. That doesn't mean I'm arrogant or in any way think that I'm something special. I just, from a very young age, my father used to hold parties or whatever. And me and my sister would serve drinks and nibbles mm -hmm. and we would socialize with adults. So I was never scared of meeting people. And, you know, there were some pretty fancy people who come along to these things and I would just treat them as equals and they would treat me as equals. And I learned that. And that was another trick before we get into the trade thing is I had a secret weapon. The secret weapon was my name, which nobody can really pronounce, including myself. And everyone pronounces it differently however they feel. So I would always just use my first name. So I would call up Paul Tudor Jones, get to his assistant or the, the person who ran the trading desk, say, can I speak to Paul? And they would say, who's speaking? I'd say, it's Raoul. Sure, Raoul, hold on. Right? Nobody else did that. It's like, oh, it's Bob Smith from Goldman. But there was only one Raoul. And so the moment that that assistant would call Paul or Stan or whoever it was, they would only use my first name. So they assumed we were friends. And those people felt I was a peer because they only knew me by, they didn't know me as Rob, Bob Smith from Goldman. They knew me as Raoul. It was, it was a genius piece of marketing. So it's so interesting that you talk about all those legendary, your sort of, you know, sort of in, the inside seat you had to those legendary hedge funds, because um, we're actually going to do something a little different for your four trades. Um, for the best trades, we're going to talk about other people's trades that you saw that really had an impact on you or really le left you sort of impressed or after all these years stood out to you. So they're going to be other people's trades. But for your worst trades, we're going to do your trades. So you get to brag about other people, but share the pain of your own trades. But we thought that would be that would be fun because not many people have had the sort of access to these folks that you have. Okay, so we ready? We're ready. The first trade is one of the best, and that is a trade that was made during the Asian financial crisis, and it involved the South African RAND. So tell us about this. This is, 19, this is 1998. It was when I realized that 
the game that you see being played is not the game. And what you, what you realize is the world's best investors think two or three steps ahead at a speed and understanding that is breathtaking and it takes a while to learn to be anywhere remotely as good. Yeah, it's so see, that seeing around corners that, that sort of certain people are able to do. Yeah, and this trade, every time I describe it to people, everybody goes, they, oh my God, really? And I don't, once you know it, it's so bloody obvious. So what's happening at this time? Like what's happening in global markets? Where are you? Are you at Goldman still? Are you... I was Goldman. I was a salesman. It was 1998. I don't know if Roger Hurst had yet joined. I don't think he joined me yet. So he came and joined me as, as my sidekick. Um, and we were wildly overworked. I couldn't go to the bathroom during the day. It was so busy. It was like chaotic markets. All of Asia was imploding. The European banks were imploding. The hedge funds were trading like crazy, you know, later long-term capital blow up. I mean, there is- This is the Asian financial crisis, the beginning of the Asian financial yeah, so crisis, this is, right? This is 98. This is about 97, 98, 98, I think. So the single, and I would see the trades of Tiger Management, Julian Robertson, who sadly just died. I would see how they traded. I would see how Paul Shooter Jones traded. I would see how Stan Druckenmiller traded. And most of these guys, long-term capital management, all of them. But the guy who was the most aggressive was Lewis Bacon. Lewis Bacon of more capital management. And I knew his, I didn't know him that well, but I knew his team very well. They were my biggest client by a long way. And they were obviously very busy over the Asian financial crisis, but it's like hedge fund heaven. Everything's going on. The economies are imploding. Currencies are collapsing. So there is. So what's going on at this time is Thailand devalues its currency and that starts tipping the world into this rolling sovereign debt crisis across Asia. And currencies are collapsing, stock markets are collapsing, bond markets are blowing up and it's all happening. And the European banks are under stress because they've been lending money to Asia and we kind of know that whole game. And... We're kind of midway through this, and the hedge funds are starting to figure out what's next, right? Because there's always a daisy chain when it comes to leverage. What's next? Who's going to blow up next? And I remember looking at Stan's trades, Stan Druckenmiller's trades, because I could see them all at Goldman. And what the I, flow? Because you could see the flow they were putting. I through. could see Is the flow. Right? I could see the positions in the in the in the futures booking system, and I could see how he had layered on bets, starting with FX. But then equities, commodities, fixed income, I could see how he weighted his bets. It was fascinating to see. Obviously, you know, it was all private information, so you couldn't discuss it. But I could see how Stan's mind was and how he would bet in this very fast-moving dynamic market. And more capital, very aggressive, um, very... Uh, ama amazing, amazingly talented people. And Lewis Bacon is one of the most incredible people. And I get the phone call from the head of trading and in the market chaos. And they were always, he was always really aggressive, but he was a good friend as well. He's like, 
He calls me up and goes, Raoul, sell South Africa. And puts the phone down. I'm like, what do you want to sell in South Africa? I'm an equity derivative desk. It's not the currency. It's not a currency desk, in which case you know. It's like, huh. So what do you want me to sell? And how much do you want me to sell? And at what price do you want me to sell? None of those three were there. So I call him back and I said, Chris, what do you want to do? He goes, just, I think his words were just fucking sell South Africa. And then he says, oh, stop. Just don't sell the futures contracts. Sell the stocks. I said, do you want it to even look like, do you want it to look at the index? He goes, I don't give a shit. Hangs up, hangs up. And then every 10 minutes, he'd be like, how much have you done? I'm like, it's South Africa. It's not very liquid. Just keep going. This went on for five days. Five days. We just So all sold. South African st- equities, any equities that you could... Yeah, anything that was liquid, we sold it. So, <laughs> okay. The South African stock market collapses. About a month later, six weeks later... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The phone lights up again from More Capital. Buy them back. You know, and it was the same messy process. And three, four days later, we finished it. And I work out the maths. I'm like, all of that mess of the market collapsing, you moving the price, all of these crazy orders, blah, 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 for 8%. And I'm like, you know, the position, I can't remember what what it was, half a billion dollars or something. It was big, but it wasn't enough for more capital who ran 10 billion plus to really move the dial, considering that currencies were collapsing and all of this stuff was going on. So on a quiet moment, I called back the head of trading and said, what did Lewis just do there? Because that seemed like a complete waste of time and effort. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, you've made 8% on that big, messy, multi-day thing. He goes, no, we didn't. We made 58%. It's one of the best trades we did all year. I'm like, what am I missing here? So then he goes on to explain. The big trade in the Asian crisis was shorting the currencies because they're liquid and they were moving enormously. But the problem was the interest rate markets they were raising interest rates to stop the speculators borrowing the currency. So if you have to borrow the currency, it's now 20% borrow costs. It's expensive and it was difficult to do. So across Asia, this game had been, if you were lucky enough to secure your funding, the borrow costs, you could do these trades. But if you were too late, they were becoming marginal because there was 20% cost of capital just to do it, maybe more. So South Africa had a really unusual situation. They had two currencies, the financial rand and the commercial rand. The commercial rand 
was fungible. You could trade it around the world. But interest rates on that, because everybody wants to short it, were like 20-something percent. Call it 27%. Crazy rates. As foreigners, we couldn't short the financial round. I can't remember which way round it was. I think it was the financial round we couldn't short. And so I'm like, okay, I understand. What were you doing here? He goes, oh, it was pretty simple. He said, we realize that when you short stocks in South Africa, your borrowing costs were half a percent. And you got short the financial rand, which nobody else could short. And he said it fell 50%. Nobody else had figured this out. It was a way round funding that nobody else had figured out. And they'd seen it and acted super fast before anybody knew what was going on. And so what I thought the trade was, was shorting the stock market. But that was just one of the tools to get the actual position, which was to short the currency market, which had fallen 50% and get round the issues of stock borrow, regulations between markets, all sorts of stuff. It was at that point I realized that different people play a different level of game than I could. It's funny that you tell that story because we're now in a situation where we have a global crisis that's you know, sort of unfolding, although we don't really know yet. It's not, it's not rapidly, things are not rapidly falling apart, but you have um, rising rates. You have, you know, you have lots of people looking at different situations. You have policy divergence. Um, can, can you do things like that now? Or was that particular to that time period? No, it just depends what it is. You know, you know, there's complexity. I don't know how the funding markets work, but somebody in the funding markets will be figuring out something to do. It's, But it wasn't the complexity of that, of knowing the plumbing. It was the speed of which they processed the opportunity and went for it before anybody even understood what was happening. So I saw it again from More Capital. Uh, this is not one of my best two trades, but it was, again, amazing. So in the UK, the 5G licenses were being issued, and the UK decided to auction them. Sorry, 3G licenses. They decided to auction the 3G phone license. And what happens was there is a massive bid because everybody outcompetes themselves saying, we must have this ability to have 3G. And I can't remember how much it was, but it was billions of dollars. And the moment that hit the tape, Lewis Bacon figured out, this is going to bankrupt every single telco in Europe because every single country is going to do this. They're all going to extract as many, as much revenue as possible by auctioning off 3G licenses and everybody's going to go bust. Or bust, you know, they're going to come under severe financial stress. And that's when we started the sector swap business in Europe. The guy from the trading guest calls me up and goes, how the fuck do we short telcos in Europe? I'm like, well, there is an index, the Dow Jones... Um, um, index that's based on this stuff. He's like, well, is it tradable? I'm like, no. He said, well, you're going to have to figure it out. And he said, and I need to go and find a friend of yours who'll make a market as well so I can get out of the trade without just relying on Goldman because I need to protect myself. I'm not going to get killed by you guys. So I called <laughs> up Jason Good, a good friend of mine at Deutsche Bank, said, listen, Jason, we're going to start the sector business in Europe. This is the Dow Jones sector. This is the telco index. He's like, fine. So we start it, and again, within 
probably about an hour of figuring out that we can do it. And we said, we'll figure out the details. He had sold like a billion dollars of telcos before anybody even figured out what the hell was happening and made a fortune because he just so fast to see the knock-on effects. It's like, oh, amazing auction. Wow, that was a lot of money to, well, everybody's going to, every European country is going to do this to how are the telcos, the European telcos going to afford this to, well, this is going to absolutely kill them. Amazing. So the guy was really good at doing that is really fast, assessing huge amounts of information and making the best expression of the view. So, you know, what lesson did you take away personally? How did you think about that as you, especially once you started, once you left Goldman and started managing money yourself and, you know, thinking about your macro framework? It was really about too many people do the obvious. And there's another group of people who overcomplicate. What you're trying to look is for that sweet spot between seeing something that nobody else is seeing yet, but still giving yourself a high probability of success. I've seen this, my old boss at GLG, Noam Goddesman, would say, when I would get a little bit carried away by doing some kind of weird option structure, he'd say, listen, Raoul, if you want to scratch your ear, you don't put your arm all the way around your head to scratch your ear, you just scratch your ear. So if you want to go long the euro, buy the euro. Why have you got the stupid structure? And it was the keep it simple, stupid idea that I see so many people still to this day do, and I hear them on real vision, overcomplicating stuff. So there is a balance between being too simple, which case it's too bloody obvious for everybody, or too complicated that the trade never works anyway. And I've, so many people have lost their entire careers doing that, particularly option guys. They're just, they always overthink everything. So it's that sweet spot between being fast, not overthinking it, but thinking it through further than most people do in a shorter period of time. Which is easy to, easy to say that. It's so incredibly difficult to do. And when you see it done like that, it's awesome. It's just, you know, it's just like, it's like watching a grandmaster play chess and doing it really fast. It's like, wow, okay, do that again? That, that, yeah. that was magic. But it also, it, then you know it's possible. So you're like, oh, crap, if he can do it, like theoretically, we all should be able to do it. But it's just, it's so, so hard. So this next trade, the second trade, is one of your worst, and it's one of yours. In 2009, you ignored your macro framework and you overrode it with emotion. So set the scene for us. Like, what's happening in your career? What's happening in your, you know, in your life? Have you been successful trading at this point? I have basically retired from the hedge fund business. I didn't, I didn't make the fortune that make me the richest man in the world, but I'd done well from it. Um, and my last year, I didn't do great, but, you know, we were up for awards for some of the years. So, you know, I had a decent shot, but I didn't want to do it. I didn't like managing money for other people, and I didn't like being forced into a shorter-term time horizon um, than, than what I thought macro should be. I think that macro should be higher volatility, longer time horizon, but the pension industry and the funder fund industry was forcing people into shorter term time horizons, less volatility. So it became about gathering assets and not about performance. I'm like, I can see where this is going. I want out. And I was dead right. I saw it in advance and got out the hedge fund industry as it slowly imploded its way through lack of performance. Um, so I was living in Spain, writing Global Macro Investor, which is my institutional research service. And I was 
I had seen the financial crisis coming and had written about it and done extremely well and made money trading myself, made a lot of money for my clients, made a lot of money, made my whole reputation on that. A lot of the people from the big short were clients of mine. A lot of the most famous hedge fund people in the world became global macro investor clients back then and are still with me today. Um, and then it came, so I'd been using the business cycle framework, which is the ISM that people have seen me talk about on Real Vision, using um, the business cycle to predict where asset prices go. Fine. Got all that right. You know, cover most of the financial crisis, got it right. And then the markets have been imploding. So it's now kind of March 2020. No, call, call it April, May. They've started bouncing from the low. And I'm thinking the financial system is going to completely go because that was the sentiment that we're going to go to the logical conclusion. I see people doing this now. The logical conclusion is the complete wipeout of the financial system. And whether that leads to a sovereign crisis, whatever it is, but it's the next step. It's the depression, right? That's in the back of everybody's mind is that 90% downside and the whole thing going. And this is this is around this is after you know part of what was feeding into that because this is after we see Lehman go. I mean it was like dominoes, like firms that had been around that had weathered all of that were just falling. I mean it was it was a it was a crazy time. I mean there were you're right that people thought it was the world was ending. I mean it was not a joke. I mean the wheels were coming off. You know Hank Paulson is throwing up in the White House in his memoir he tells us because he's so freaked out by what's going on. Yeah, people don't understand that an entire system commercial system of which we live is based around finance and banking. And the entire banking system become insolvent. And that was probably the pensions industry as well and anything to do with housing. And I mean, it had all stopped. And the terrifying thing is, you, if you're not careful, you go back to barter. It had happened in Argentina in 2004. We'd seen it. People knew. So somewhere in the back of my mind was, holy shit, this could be Argentina, 2004, where it went to barter. Or this is... 1929, 1931, 1932, 1933, all over again, which means that even though the market's down 50%, it can go down another 50% and another 50%. Because what is the resolution? <clears throat> now, the resolution ended up being quantitative easing. None of us knew what that really meant. So I see the quantitative easing. I see the massive fiscal stimulus, the TARP policy, all of this stuff. And the markets start rallying and you're used to short squeezes. So of course you think it's a short squeeze. My economic indicators had bottomed. They got as bad as they were going to get and they'd started to rise. But my emotion was telling me this is not over yet. We're going to go to the logical conclusion. It's when you kind of impose your will on the markets and you see it, I see it now, I see it, I, I've seen it in different periods of time where people impose what they think it should be, not what it is. So I'm like, this is the comeuppance of the financial system. This is the big one. 
And it was a big one, right? It was catastrophic, but I thought it should be more. Down 50%, that's nothing. We need total wipeout here. This is what, you know, this is what we're going to get punished for the leverage that we've taken. And so my indicators were picking up to say the business cycle had bottomed. And I had constructed a narrative in my head that the business cycle would roll over again and create another new low. I had no evidence to support that. What it was, was emotion telling me that's what I wanted. I just had a huge success of 2008. I was now feeling hubristic. I thought I was invincible. Of course I would nail this. And imagine the glory if I got it right again, that the market rolls over and that it didn't mean revert. And then we went through decades of, of markets not going back to the highs. And if I called that, then I would be amazing, right? Every time I've done this, Every time I've started to believe my shit smells of roses, I've had my nose rubbed in it. Um, I remember when I was at GLG, I remember the difficult conversation with Noam Goddesman, who's still a mentor and a very close friend of mine, um, about a pay rise, uh, being compensated for, you know, we'd had some good performance and I, I wanted to get a, a percentage, a better percentage of the performance fees. So Noam very graciously agreed. Uh, you know, we debated all this stuff. And obviously, I then had a terrible year afterwards. Of course. <laughs> and actually, to be, known, to be fair to Noam, he's like, I was like, no, I'm going to leave. And he said, I said, look, and I'm not going to get a bonus anyway, because I negotiated this. And I stand by that. If, if I'm not making money, I shouldn't get paid. He's like, no, no, I'll pay you a bonus regardless, because I want you around. I'm like, I can't do that, because I'm not honoring my part of the deal. But uh, thank you. That was the kind of guy he was. But so hubris I've learned is when it creeps in, you start to, you, your spidey sense should go up. I completely got this wrong. So all of the work, all of the economic work that I taught myself how to look at the business cycle all said the probability is that the worst is behind us. My emotional side was screaming other things. Everybody around us was screaming other things. And so I didn't close out my short positions. Mm. I said it'll be fine because it'll roll over again. And then I added. And, and I was recommending it as well. And there's a bunch of people. 2009 was a mixed year. You either, got, you either did really well or you got absolutely nuked. And I got absolutely nuked. I don't think I... I think, well, it was easily the worst year I'd ever had in the history of Global Macro Investor. Uh, easily the worst year I'd had personally. And... A lot of clients got murdered by it as well. When you had such success with that bear call, is it easy to get sucked into that again? You know, that you're in that bearish framework and just hard to, to make that pivot when it works so well? It's very hard. And you've, you begin to self-identify. All macro people self-identify with bear, market, bear markets. Mm -hmm. Because generally speaking, if markets are a string of positive returns and negative returns... Bull markets tend to take time. Bear markets happen super fast. So if you get it right, you make a lot of money very quickly. So macro guys love bear markets. We use leverage. We go for the kill. Then you walk away. And the lesson everybody learns is the when do you walk away and when do you not? So the really good people, the Paul Tudor Joneses and the Lewis Bacons and the Stan Druckermillers, 
No. I remember writing to Paul, in fact, in 2001. And I wrote to Paul. I said, look, you know, I'm really bearish and blah, 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 blah. And it was like in the middle of the 2002, after 9-11. And he just said, yeah, I agree, Raoul. Just be careful. Don't outstay your bearish welcome. I remember the email really well. And he was warning me, obviously, that he could see that we were getting close to the reversal. Um, and I, th- I probably did, out- I, I certainly did overstay then. It wasn't the worst. Um, but in 2009, I just overstayed it. I just overstayed it because I wanted to be right as opposed to not realizing. And that's very different to being early or getting a trade wrong. These are very different things. This is the emotional overwriting of your macro framework. Sometimes you can be like, I'm currently really quite wrong on bonds, but my macro framework tells me that this is the best risk reward position and this is what you should be doing. So it's not an emotional position. It's very different. Yeah. And and you can see all over Twitter that people are very emotionally tied to the narratives they have in their head uh, across a range of issues. What what is how do you recover from something like that? So you went from being the the sort of best and most respected and suddenly you're just you're lo- you're losing money, you're losing clients money. How do you how do you bounce back from that? First you need to get back to the point of intellectual honesty, and that takes a while. To get back to, yeah, screwed up. And then then your head is not normally right. So the first thing to do is try not to take a lot of risk and tr- just just calm down. Your thesis was wrong. Find a new thesis, but don't force it because often you try and get the next big trade, right? And I've seen that. Kyle Bass, a bunch of these guys make a ton of money in one trade and try and force a narrative and it doesn't work because they want to be that guy. So I, I think 2010 was kind of okay, um, but I was gun-shy. 2011, I think, was pretty decent. And then 2012 was a great year because I got the European crisis. Uh, and I didn't overstay. So you build yourself back up. You build yourself back up cautiously. You can't help it. You're scarred. And you feel... I'm confident. I mean, it's happening to me now. You know, you just feel like, fuck, I can't get anything right right now. And it makes you feel, you know, just insecure generally about what you're doing. And the answer is, is to do your work, is to do the analysis, set yourself aside from your emotions and saying, today, what would I do? Would I put this trade on or not put this trade on? You know, okay, you've got the trade on. Do I... Do I just stick with it because over the time horizon, the risk reward still works or am I fooling myself? And it's quite, it takes a while to do all of that. Um, and it's pretty horrible. And I remember even in 2001, 2002, when I was at GLG running a big book, there'd be periods of time where it just didn't work and we'd been making money. And what we tend to do is just close everything out, just close everything out and just stop. And so fine, look, let's just take a day out of the office, go and do something else and then we can rebuild up. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our discussion. Tune in next week to hear about Raoul's final two trades and more stories from his incredible learning journey. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. 
For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.